Today's reading is from 2 Samuel. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And then they ravaged, Am- and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew they would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb a fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity." Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thank you, Adriana. Good morning, everybody. I've got to say uh, that um, all it took for me to do during that offertory was to close my eyes and feel like Rich Mullins had actually come back from the dead and was playing his song live for us. It was so uh, awesome. Um, made me glad to, to have stayed uh, here in Nashville on July 4th weekend, if only for that. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Scott, if we have not met yet. If you're visiting Nashville for the July 4th uh, weekend. Uh, we welcome you also, and we're, we're glad that you've decided, decided to join us this morning. Uh, we've been going through a series uh, that we're calling The Battle Within, and we're talking about different heart struggles uh, and internal sins and weaknesses that, um, that the gospel uh, addresses. And so today what we're talking about is hypocrisy, and, and we're referring to hypocrisy as an occasion to or an opportunity to repent. So, um, so a couple years ago, uh, our, our uh, executive director Bob Bradshaw uh, led our staff through an exercise uh, with our Myers Briggs personality uh, profiles. And uh, what we were doing, or what Bob was doing, was was comparing our personalities to famous or well-known people from history. 
um, that share the same personalities that we do. And so I happen to be an INFJ. So, um, so, you know, those of you who are, you know, psychiatrists and counselors and stuff, you're going, okay, well, that explains a lot. Um, so I'm an IN, INFJ, which represents less than 1%. It's the rarest personality uh, uh, profile. And I found in this exercise that Bob took us through that I share a personality with Jesus Christ, Mahatma Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler. And um, it, you know, the first thing I learned was that Jesus Christ took the Myers-Briggs. I didn't, didn't realize that. Um, but once I did, I was encouraged to hear that I had a few things in common with him. Uh, and as you might imagine, a bit concerned that Hitler was on the list as well. So the point of that exercise really for me was to confirm that in me and in every person there lies potential for heroic love and also for unspeakable evil. And we've got this here in King David who is referred to by God as the man after God's own heart gave us the Psalms and, and, and so on. And yet he falls into the horrible sins of adultery and murder, which both flow from, from, from a reprehensible abusive sin known as the abuse of power. I really appreciated the Puritan prayer that David Filson uh, pointed us to a few moments ago from Valley of Vision, where, where he talked about a poor, gospel-abusing sinner. What we've got in front of us is a picture of that in David, a poor, gospel-abusing sinner. You know, the two most famous stories about David that we have are, number one, the Goliath story, right? The story of heroic love where he put his own life at risk uh, to, to fight on behalf of all of Israel and on behalf of King Saul, the Philistine giant Goliath, right? And we have that whole story about how God delivered him and all of Israel from, from the Philistines through that. And then we've got Bathsheba, which is, which is the account of unspeakable evil in David's life. And so, so what we're going to do today is look at the Bathsheba incident uh, as it relates to the human condition and to each one of us. And there are four headings. You're getting a bonus because it's a holiday weekend. Um, none of us is immune. That's number one. Uh, we can't do this alone. That's number two. Uh, hypocrisy and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. That's number three. And finally, an unspeakable grace. And so let's begin uh, with this. None of us is immune to what happened to David. None of us. None of us is immune from the potential for moral collapse. So I look back on my years of seminary where David Filson and Todd Teller and I and Kevin Twitt, who's in the earlier service, and, and, and a number of others uh, got educated to become pastors. And as I look back on, on, on the picture of, of our graduating class, one has left Christianity altogether after leaving his wife and children and has become an atheist. Another one left his wife and children while in the ministry. And two others have lost their ministries due to moral failure. In the last five, or I'm sorry, in the last one year, five of my friends, five, have lost their ministries because of public and moral failure. 
So this is really on my radar right now. There is potential for everybody to do what David did and worse. David who wrote the Psalms, David who who penned worship poetry for all of the Israelites and for the entire global church. That David, the David after God's own heart, even the good guys, collapse. This, this is really one of the things about the Bible that comforts me more than so many other things. All the screw-ups in there. Abraham, terrible husband. Jacob, liar. Rahab, prostitute. Peter, coward, racist. Barnabas, son of encouragement, and also got rep- wrapped up and swept up into Peter's cowardice and racist, racism. Adam and Eve blew it for the whole human race. And then you look at church history, and you look at all the titans that we quote from our pulpits, and that we receive inspiration from and encouragement from, like John Calvin, who burned a man at the stake because of his denial of Christianity, or Martin Luther, who was known during certain seasons of his life for anti-Semitic tendencies, or Jonathan Edwards, who owned slaves until the day he died, or Martin Luther King Jr., who committed adultery as he was leading the civil rights movement in the name of Christ. If there is hope for this and the many others that I could add to this list, there is also hope for anyone you know, like the hymn goes that we, we sing sometimes, the love, love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the, the lowest hell. There's no sin so great that God cannot redeem it and restore the person. And yet, the foolishness that we have in front of us is also a gift to teach us to be wise so that we don't collapse. You know, the David story shows us something that's important for us to learn from, and that is that sin has a progressive nature. You don't just go out and kill somebody and commit adultery. It starts with hundreds and maybe even thousands of, of previous miniature decisions on seemingly smaller temptations. And what happens is those sins accumulate, and the conscience gets hardened, and the calluses form on the soul so that even adultery and murder don't seem like a big deal anymore. It's like a drug addiction, you know, like, like, like uh, you know, that song by uh, Guns N' Roses, Mr. Brownstone singing about heroin. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so a little got more and more. That's how sin works. It starts with David neglecting his duty. So we celebrate Independence Day, the, the hard-fought freedom, right, that, 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 that we, we, you know, pause, you know, this weekend and Veterans Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend to honor those who have have blood-bought our freedom, right? And so here we have David with soldiers out to war against the Ammonites, and it says this, at the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem on his couch, and he wakes up from a nap in the afternoon while everybody else is out to war. And then what he does is he sees his next-door neighbor, Bathsheba, taking a bath on the roof. That's where baths were situated in those days. 
But it's not that he saw her that's the problem. It's that he took a second look. And then he gaped at her and groped at her. And, and then after this, he, he put himself above his friends, right? You know, when they, they talk about, in, in a very appropriate way, you know, pornography, and, you know, here, here's one of the millions of reasons why you should think twice about viewing pornography. Number one, it's somebody else's son in there, in that video. It's somebody else's daughter, right? So Bathsheba is somebody else's daughter. She is the daughter of Eliam, who is one of David's mighty men. And she is also the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is also one of David's mighty men. The mighty men were a group of about 30 soldiers who were fiercely loyal to David, who'd put their own lives on the line repeatedly in order to protect David and to honor him as their king and as their brother and friend. And yet David thinks nothing about exploiting somebody else's daughter and somebody else's wife because he could. He tells what many of us might uh, regard as a white lie, right? A little bitty lie, right? Just a little bit of spin, just a little bit of obfuscation when it says that David inquired about the woman. Who is this woman over here? When he knew exactly who it was. See, that, that inquiry was just step one of a manipulative strategy to get her into his bed. And then the white lie leads to the abuse of power. It says that he sent for Bathsheba. He sent for her, and then he took her. These are acts of aggression. These are acts of force. These are acts against the will. This is, these are not consensual things. He sent for her, and he took her. How do we know it's not consensual? Okay, we don't know. But one thing that we do know is how things worked in those days, and that is this. If the king said, you do this, or I want you to do this, you either did it or you died. And so she had a choice, cheat on her husband or get killed. Kind of a lose-lose situation, right? And so then she gets pregnant. And so he has to pile more lies upon lies in order to cover himself. And so he calls his faithful friend, his mighty warrior, his mighty man, Uriah, home. And he says, Uriah, you're doing such a great job out on the battlefield. You're, you're, you're fiercely loyal. Uh, you're, you're a courageous soldier. I want to reward you by giving you a night to spend with your wife. And you know what's going on. He's trying to cover his tracks. He's trying to create a scenario of plausible deniability after it's announced that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. He's trying to create plausible de deniability. You know, sort of the portrait of the deadbeat father. You know, she's not my lover. She's just a girl who claims that I am the one, but the kid is not my son. Right? And yet it is his son. And so he calls his soldier in, and, 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 and he says, take a drink. And Uriah takes a drink. He says, take another drink. Take another one. Oh, sir, really? Take another. Yes. Can't deny the king. Take a drink. Take a drink. He gets him drunk. And then he says, now go sleep with your wife. And, and Uriah says this. He says, I can't do that. My brothers are out to war. 
Imagine if you're the king who stays at home when all the other kings are at battle and, and your faithful, loyal soldier says, I, can't, I will not dare go in my house and he sleeps on his own porch instead and never doesn't even once go into his wife, doesn't even say hello to her. Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober in this moment. And not even that is enough to cause David to have a pang of conscience and to turn. You see how the heart has been callous through incremental miniature decisions to sin, 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 sin. Tell a little lie. Indulge a little lust. Abuse a little power. And, and, and build it up and build it up and build it up. And now adultery and murder, no big deal. It's what you do. Casualties of war, right? Collateral damage. What would it do to the nation if it, if it became known that I, that I was unfaithful with one of my friends and soldiers' wives? I mean, that would hurt the nation of Israel. So I, I have to take care of this, Right? If this can happen to the man who gave us the Psalms, do we really think even for a second that it couldn't happen to us? The obvious warning here is guard your heart. Or as the Puritan, another Puritan, John Owen said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Or as Pink, the recording artist said, I'm a hazard to myself. Don't let me get me. You know, think about it. You take an acorn, right? You pick a little acorn up off the ground. You got this magnificent oak tree, right, in your, I don't know, the park where you take a walk. And you pick up an acorn, and you look at that acorn, and you say, I just cannot fathom how this acorn can become an oak tree that weighs thousands of pounds. So I was over at a friend's house last night, and he showed me this this neat, you know, kind of solid wooden table. And it's this little thing. It's about a third of, of the length of this and the same width of this, and it's about that, that deep. And it, he said it weighs 600 pounds. So a little tiny acorn can, can create an oak tree that, that would contain, I don't know, 20 or 30 of those 600-pound tables. There's no way, right? You look at this little thing, and yet you know it can. And, you know, given the right conditions, that acorn is going to become an oak tree. Not only that, it has the potential to become a forest. And, and that forest, of course, has the potential to become a forest fire. And so the most vulnerable people are the ones who think that the acorn won't lead to anything. The most vulnerable people are the ones who think they're not vulnerable a little glance, a little grudge, harmless, right? A glance and a grudge. That's what you call the gateway drug to what David did. These are the gateway sins, the ones that happen in the heart. Maybe that's why Jesus was so serious in the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to be our, our series next fall, and it may last us a couple of years. I don't know. We're going to dwell on the Sermon on the Mount for a while partly to protect our own hearts and guard our own hearts. But one of the things Jesus says is, look, if you're, if you're lusting for somebody in your own heart, you're an adulterer. If, if you're hateful in your heart against somebody, you're already a murderer. Because these are all the acorns that can lead to oak trees and forests and forest fires. And so, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not being literal there. He's being hyperbolic. He's trying to make a statement with utmost seriousness. 
that wherever you are vulnerable, especially wherever the people around you tell, you tell you that you might be vulnerable to sin, it is essential to crush the acorn before it becomes a sprout, to uproot the sprout before it becomes a tree, to uproot the tree before it becomes a forest, to take down the forest before it becomes a fire. And we might say, oh, this talk about sin, you know, to err is human, nobody's perfect, so legalistic. No, it's just wise. Scripture's just trying to help us not be fools, self-destructive and other destructive fools. You know, God says to Cain, right, Cain's got a grudge and some jealousy toward his brother Abel, and God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and you must master it. You must master it before it masters you. You must control it before it ends up controlling you. You must crush it before it crushes you. And he did not pay attention to the warnings about the grudge and jealousy that was in his heart to deal with that. And what he ended up doing was murdering his own brother, his own flesh and blood. You know, that part of us that thinks it is harmless to flirt Harmless to flirt with lust or gossip or greed or selfish ambition or anger as long as we don't get into bed with it. That part of us that thinks it's harmless to flirt, we are fooling ourselves. And it's because of that that Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 10, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a gracious warning. So, Second thought, we can't do this alone. What does God do when when, when David is blinded to his own foolishness, when David is blinded to his own abuse of power and and all the things that are going on, when he's blinded to the way that he's justifying all of these things in his heart, fooling himself into bed with another woman, fooling himself into murder as he sends his general Joab to, to... Uh, with a command to to put Uriah on the front line so he dies to create plausible deniability for himself. What does God do? He gives David a community. In this instance, it's only a community of one, but he gives him a community. Because sometimes we're blind. Sometimes our hearts are so deceitful, we can't self-regulate. We don't know ourselves. That's why we have therapists. That's why we have counselors. That's why we have sermons and Bibles and and good books that, that teach us about wisdom and health because we're unable to see ourselves. You know, we're the frog in the kettle. We don't know it's getting hot until it's too late and we're boiling and we're cooked. And so we can't do this alone. So Nathan comes to David. He tells him a story about a rich man who has everything, and yet he takes it upon himself to steal and to take for himself, because he can, the little lamb, which is all that his, his neighbor has in his possession. He takes that too, and David is infuriated by this story. You see how Nathan approaches David? He doesn't go straight for the jugular. He tells a story to create empathy in David for the one who's being abused and for the one who's being damaged in this story. And then David, David says, that man deserves, that rich man deserves to die for abusing his power in that way. And little does he know that Nathan has just given David in this story enough rope with which to hang himself and, 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 and a gavel with which to condemn himself. And it's at that opportune moment that Nathan turns to David and says, you are that man. 
you know, for that part of us that is conflict avoidant, that, that part of us that avoids obedience to Matthew 18, where it says, if somebody sins against you, go and tell them privately. Go and tell them their fault. Don't, don't gossip their sins to other people. Go directly to them and privately to them and tell them. Or Galatians 6, where it says, you know, if any of you is caught in transgression, you, these are all plurals, assuming again a community, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently. You need more than the Bible, in other words, to, 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 to be protected from your own vulnerability. You need more than the Bible. Because your heart, along with the Bible, can, can be very self-deceptive. David had the Bible. David wrote some of the Bible. You need people around you reminding you of the things they see in the Bible and in you that you don't see. Yeah, but we, you know, th- for those instances, when we avoid conflict and resist what the Scriptures tell us when we see somebody else in a compromised position because it will be socially awkward. Think about what Nathan had on the line here. It was much more than a potentially socially awkward moment. Consider the situation. Nathan is putting his neck on the line knowing that David just killed one of his best friends to cover his own hide. So Nathan is thinking, you know, this could end really poorly for me because David's got all the power. I've got no leverage on him except the truth. He's got every other bit of power. All I have is the truth. And sometimes you get crucified for telling the truth. Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill once said, Criticism may not be agreeable, but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to the unhealthy state of things. What doctor, if, if she saw cancer on a pathology report, would, would go to her patient and say, it's okay, you're okay, it's a common cold. You know, that would be the cruelest, harshest thing to not point out the deadly thing that's, that's in there. Sometimes our critics, even the ones who irritate us the most, are one of the greatest gifts that God can give us. You know, David, it says, sent for Bathsheba and sent for Uriah so that he could manipulate Uriah. And then he sent for Joab so that Joab could kill Uriah. And then it says in verse 17 that the Lord sent Nathan to David. When David was at his worst, the Lord sent the truth carried by the prophet Nathan. We can't do this alone. Then the third thought in that is that hypocrisy and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. Hypocrisy and faithfulness always go together because there's no such thing as a person who's not a hypocrite unless you're Jesus. None of us lives consistently with the things that we say that we believe. None of us lives consistently with the things that we actually do believe. And so we've seen David at his worst, but what about David at his best? Did you notice how swiftly David repented? There were, there were no defenses that went up. There, there was no David looking at Nathan and saying, how dare you? Do you know who it is you're talking to? There was none of that. What David did was he, 
saw the value in managing up the org chart, in challenging and giving a negative review up the org chart. You see, good leaders, actually the only leaders, are the ones who listen and repent even when they don't have to. It was, if it was David calling out Nathan, Nathan would have no choice because of the power dynamic. But, but, but Nathan calling out David, the power dynamic made it, made it such that David, the king, didn't have to listen to a word that Nathan said. And yet, what, what are the first words out of his mouth? I have sinned against the Lord. Tell me more, Nathan. And then Nathan tells him more, and it's, it's really hard news. And then there's some good news mixed into there. The Lord is not going to do to you what you did to Uriah. And that's the good news. There's forgiveness and grace for you, but there's also a lot of bad news. You, you know, you, this, one, this, this baby in, in, inside of Bathsheba is going to die. Your child's going to die. It, it's going to go poorly for you. Your household's going to be dysfunctional and all these other things. There are consequences, and yet you're going to be forgiven and embraced and received by the Lord as if you'd never done anything wrong. That's what true leadership is. And we see this forming in David, uh, you know, continually after the fact. We, we, we've got Psalm 51, which if you want to get a picture of, of David's repentance of this very situation in detail, Psalm 51 was born out of that experience. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassions. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Against you and you only have I sinned, and so on. It's the most complete portrait of repentance that, that, that we have is the 51st Psalm, and it comes right out of this experience. And then in the 141st Psalm, which is also a Psalm of David, David says this. You, you, you get the sense that he's learned something significant from the Nathan experience. When David says, let a righteous man strike me, that is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. That is oil on my head. So in those days, oil had medicinal quality. It was used for healing purposes. He's, looking, he's, he's equating rebuke and healing, David is, okay? So you go to chapter 16, just a few chapters over, and there's a buffoon named Shimei who's throwing rocks at David as David and his men are passing by. He's throwing rocks at him, insulting the king, saying, you know, hurling all kinds of verbal insults and, 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 and you know, verbal grenades at him. And one of his, one of his guys says, you know, oh, king, permission to go cut this guy's head off so he'll shut up, and you know, permission to wield the power that is rightfully yours, to which David says, you know what? Let him manage up. Let him give me a bad review because maybe it's the Lord speaking through him, even through him. You got Nathan the emotionally healthy one, and then you've got Shimei with zero emotional intelligence. And they're both saying negative things about David, and David receives it. He takes it. And Tim Keller said recently that, that um, 
You know, if, if somebody that irritates you and with somebody who is 80% wrong about what they say about you as they criticize, if there is 20% in there, even with that person that's right, it, it's a gift for you to lay hold of that 20%, and, and it's an opportunity for you repent, to repent and in repenting to draw closer to Jesus. I love what Jack Miller used to say when people unfairly criticized him. I love it when somebody else does this. It's very hard for me to do this, but Jack Miller did this. Somebody unfairly criticized Jack Miller. Jack Miller said, said to that person, you don't know the half of it. And even I don't know the half of it because I am infinitely worse than even I think that I am. You know, the portrait of greatness in David is this, not that he is perfect, but the, he is courageous to own his imperfection. There's a readiness to humble himself. You know, when somebody who is beneath you on the org chart or somebody who is beneath you in the family system, that they call you out and you apologize instead of defending yourself or put them in their place or redirect the conversation to some other subject. If you are a leader, if you are a person in power, a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, a sign that you too are a person after God's own heart, is that you repent when you don't have to. How you doing? How am I doing? Albert Hubbard I don't know who the heck Albert Hubbard is, but he said something really significant and important. The final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure criticism without resentment. That's what makes David great in this instance. When caught in transgression, you've got the Saul and David dynamic going on here, right? Saul's the narcissist. David shows leadership. When caught in transgression, narcissists manipulate and regroup. Leaders and gospel people confess and repent. Finally, an unspeakable grace. Like every part of the Bible, the story behind this story is Jesus. Jesus is the true Uriah, the faithful soldier that dies in battle to cover our shame. The one who's loyal even to the death. The one who will not allow us to fight alone. Jesus is the true Uriah. Jesus is also the true Bathsheba. What do I mean by this? You know, we, the true Bathsheba. Is Jesus an adulteress? I don't think so. How do you get from A to B? Here it is. David, it says, took Bathsheba after this incident, after impregnating her and killing her husband. He took her as a wife. Okay, so we forget that whole context that he impregnated her through the abuse of power, forcing himself upon her, most likely, and, and then killing her guy. We forget that context, and we leap immediately and say, oh, he took her as a wife. How, how noble. He's taking responsibility. And, and that's true, but that's such a minor picture of this story between him and Bathsheba. Consider this story from Bathsheba's perspective. Consider how much she had to forgive. That this man would, would, would take her body, would literally take her body, would turn her into an object instead of a subject, turn her into a, into a thing instead of a person. 
Regard her as, as an opportunity rather than as a soul who is also somebody's daughter and somebody's wife. He took her. And then he finished off her husband, the love of her life. The child dies in infancy. And then it says that Bathsheba lay with David again as his wife. Can you believe all of the stuff that she had to go through internally to get to that place? And what happens? She gets, impregnate, she gets pregnant again. And they give birth to a son, and his name is Jedidiah, whose name means beloved of the Lord. What a redemption story. And whose other name, Solomon, means peace. Jesus is both the son of David who died and the son of David who became king. His government will increase and will have no end. And it's all of grace. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that the Bible is not filled with inspirational stories of perfect heroes, but instead it's filled with stories of imperfect, flawed, hypocritical screw-ups who are redeemed and blood-bought back by grace. Jesus, you are the child who died because of our sin. You are also the child who became king, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the, the true Prince of Peace, the true Solomon, the true Shalom. And so for the, the Abraham in us, the bad husband, for the Jacob in us, the liar, for the Rahab in us, the prostitute, for the Peter in us, who's the coward and the racist, for the Barnabas who lose sight, loses sight of, of, of the encourager that he's made to be and gets swept up in other people's sin because of peer pressure, for the John Calvin in us who would become aggressive and even murderous towards somebody because they don't believe like we do, or for the Martin Luther in us who would insult people from other races and religions, or for the Jonathan Edwards in us who would be willing to subject somebody else to slavery and not be abolitionists, even though our Bible tells us that we must. For the Dr. Martin Luther King in us, who would simultaneously be speaking the Word of God every day and cheating on that very same God at the same time. For those realities about our own hearts, Lord, teach us, teach us and, and empower us to always be killing sin so that sin doesn't kill us. Teach us, Father, to crush the acorn before it turns into a sprout, to dig up the sprout before it becomes a tree, to uproot the tree become, before it becomes a forest, to take the forest down before it becomes a fire. Lord, teach us the wisdom of this and remind us that we can't do it alone. We need the church. We need the Bible. We need it all. And we need your spirit. And we need this table in front of us, this blood-bought table that gives us a time to receive the gift of your body and your blood, this bread and this cup given for us and set apart. Consecrate them now for us, we pray. 
And as the pastors and elders and servers come forward, Lord, would you prepare our hearts for this table and also prepare our hearts for whatever words of encouragement or kindness that you would have us speak to one another when we're not at the table in this moment. Let this be a moment of encouragement and enrichment, even some Nathan moments if necessary, that we might know you better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.